Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with Yusuf. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I am using my new microphone preamp device. So everything you're hearing now is going through this new fancy device. Then it ends up with my audio interface. Then it goes to my PC. Then it goes over the internet to you. And then hopefully, hopefully out to all the, all the listeners. So I think I mentioned this. It's a rack mounted 19 inch device, one unit. So it's, it's, it's very slim. And the branded model is a DBX 286S. I think the S means silver in color. It's got a lot of knobs that, that you can twist and turn. And, and the whole idea here is that when it connects my microphone, it allows me to do stuff like give more gain to the microphone, do a high pass filter, compression, de-esser, enhancer, an expander slash gate. I have no idea what that means. And and I've I've spent maybe two evenings configuring this. And it's it's out of sight. So there's fancy LEDs that are flashing when I'm talking. But for now, I, I think I've reached the end of my audio gadget roadmap, if you will. There's nothing else <laughs> I can add anymore. I'm done now. So I'm just going to say this is episode 107. I'm going to make a mental note of this because I don't think it's the first time I might have heard you or someone else say that this is the last time I'm going to get a gadget in this specific area. I mean, I have my microphone right here and it has one cable that goes into my computer and then I talk and that's it. <laughs> the, the, the challenge I had is that I, I got, the, got the DBX device and you have to connect the microphone with this special cable, which I ordered. It's a five meter cable. And then when I got it, oh, it's, it, it, it's a male interface. It should be a female interface. Okay, let me reorder the same cable with the different interface. And you sort of end up with a huge amount of cables in a box. But you cannot throw them away because you might need them someday. <laughs> so now yeah, I'm the gonna... cables in a box problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... I, I, I feel I'm in possession of all possible audio cables now that exist. And if I ever need anything else, I will just open the box and there it will be. All right. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's settle on that. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I have not been up to anything as fancy as uh, fixing my DXBD, uh, whatever the name was. I have been back on my bike, actually. And for me, this is a big thing because flu season has been in the house pretty much since summer. So every other week we uh, get the flu from kindergarten or, or daycare. It's been going on forever. And I guess this is a result of the pandemic, everyone staying at home and kindergarten be, being really strict about who can be there and not be there. So the rules are like, if you have the smallest sniffle, whatever, they send you home or send the kids home. And the result is when the kids actually do get sick, they get really sick because the, they're not exposed to the same amount of germs as normally. And it feels like all the families we know in the neighborhood, they now have flu one version or the other. And I think this is seventh or eighth time we have the flu in our house this year. 
Wow. Which is a lot. And and I thought, well, maybe my immune system just sucks and everyone else is okay. We spoke with a couple of the other parents and they it's exactly the same. Everyone brings it home now and it's I'm happy it's just the flu and working the way we do. It's pretty easy because you get the sniffles, maybe fever one day and then that's gone. Um a bad throat, stuff like this. But back to the bike, that means I haven't been able to d- doing a lot of exercises. I've not been able to ride my bike as I usually do. So I'm super happy to be back on that. Sat on the bike for about an hour yesterday and watched Ignite while working out. And I guess that's also one of the perks of working from home or in this case, attending a conference from home that you can really do it in whatever capacity that fits the bill. And for me, yeah, I just, I needed to prioritize getting back on the bike when I finally feel that, you know, now I'm back, flu is gone. Nobody in the house is sick anymore. I feel great. Let's go. But at the same time, the final day of Ignite happens, and I really want to attend a couple of sessions there. So, um, yeah, doing that while on the bike, super convenient. So, nothing fancy on my side, but yeah, a short story about about working out from home, not just work from home. Sounds sounds good. I I can really sort of share the sentiment on the on the flu season. We've we've been quite lucky this year. But I know that next year will be different again. So just crossing my fingers here. So today, this is episode 107, Azure Updates. So we do this sort of Azure Update episode roughly every four weeks. And now that Ignite is over, and in the in the wake of that, there's a long list of interesting updates. I, I think Satya Nadella said on the, on the first keynote during Ignite that they had more than 90 updates that they're announcing during the Ignite week. And when somebody says more than 90, I'm always thinking, well, is it 91 then? <laughs> because if it's 99, <laughs> they would say close to 100. <laughs> so this is probably 91 updates. And and uh, we covered some of those in the previous episodes, sort of the big things, but this is more of a traditional update episode on everything that's since been announced in the past four weeks or so. So, so Toby, um, Please, please do start. What do you want to dissect first? So there's one thing on my mind that's been on my mind for some time. And I know we talked about this in one episode. I cannot recall the exact number, maybe three, four weeks ago, potentially five. Uh, we talked about version four of the runtime of Azure Functions coming and uh, the support of .NET 6 that is coming as well. So when .NET 6 launches, which it will do now in November, the runtime version four is supposed to, and I believe it will, launch at the same time for Azure Functions. So we can now run Azure Functions on .NET 6. But in doing so, there are some breaking changes. And I know a lot of people use Azure Functions. I use a lot of Azure Functions and I do a lot of things with them. I have upgraded a couple of my projects and non-production workloads to the V4 or the version 4 runtime. There's a couple of breaking changes. And I think this is a list of things that make sense to know about. I will put the link in the show notes. So if you go to controlaltazure.com, you can find all the links. But like the short list is Azure function proxies are no longer supported. I know people use this. Uh, you're supposed now to use Azure API management. We can talk about the, the inner workings of that in a different episode because there, I know quite some projects using Azure uh, functions proxies, but now you have to move to Azure API management, if you want to move into the version four runtime on .NET 6. Logging to Azure storage using the Azure Web Jobs dashboard 
which is this kind of a connection string that you can have for an Azure function, is no longer supported in version four. So you're re recommended to use App Insights. So there's going to be a link to that as well and how you do that. Uh, there's also Azure functions uh, for that enforces minimum version requirements for extensions. So you have to upgrade to the latest version of the affected extensions because there might be extensions with versions. So you upgrade your code to .NET 6, you upgrade the function runtime to version 4, you have a couple of extensions installed, but if those extensions are not upgraded to the supported version, it will not work. That's also breaking change. So take a look at that. Again, the links will be in the show notes. Another interesting thing that is a breaking change is default and maximum timeouts. They are now enforced in version four runtime for Linux consumption function apps. So again, these are changes that will, if you use these capabilities, it, it will be a breaking change for you. Uh, so it makes sense to uh, take a look at how to overcome that or, or work around it. And I guess the biggest one is application insights is no longer included uh, by default in Azure Functions. So as of uh, Azure Functions uh, currently preview version four, it's available as a separate extension, right? So you can still use App Insights, it's not gone. So it's not like we no longer support that. That's not what they're saying. They're saying it's not supported in the same way. So if you upgrade to version four of Azure Functions runtime, the App Insights extension is not there by default, right? So if you don't take action to run that extension or deploy it, or if you don't take action, it's not going to be there. So if your code expects App Insights to be there and work, then that might might fail, like my projects did, because I'm pretty much just using the App Insights extension, but it wasn't there, so it didn't work. And then I figured out, I went to GitHub, took a look at the issues. There's our workaround. For now, in preview, you can install a NuGet package, and that figures the problem out, and, and it works. So there are workarounds. It's not like it's a breaking change. There's no way forward. But it is not just upgrade the, the version number from three to four and you can go. There are a couple of things like the ones I just mentioned that you need to keep in mind. And I think the one for App Insight might be, at least it was for me, the biggest thing because I rely heavily on App Insight. I, anything I do, every single project I have uses App Insights, both with uh, custom logging. I use log analytics connectors. Uh, I use custom log analytics logging. I use the integrated app insights experiences to app services and function apps and stuff like this. So I use it a lot because it's really the only way for me to uh, feel the pulse of how my applications are doing, especially when we operate a kind of a distributed workload that we have today in the cloud. And without app insight, I would be entirely lost. I would never know when or why things fail. So think about that. If you're in Azure functions, you want to operate to the latest preview or as soon uh, general available version four. Think about the change with App Insights as well. It is a breaking change. You need to consider this when you upgrade. So this is an interesting update, but let me clarify. If I choose to go with, with the preview now for Functions Runtime version four, does that automatically imply that I, I will be using .NET 6? Yeah, I think so. I have not used anything else. I don't believe .NET 5 has the support, so I think uh, you need to use .NET 6. Mm -hmm. uh, because .NET 6 and the function runtime v4 will be released uh, at the same time for, for supportability. And, and also the, the language is supported for Azure Functions version 4 is .NET 6 in process and isolated. And I, I know that's stated on the app. That said, I don't know if you can run .NET 5. But for whatever reason, there is no reason to run .NET 5 because you need 
LTS support, you need something that will have long-term support and .NET 5 does not have that in Azure Functions. So use .NET, if you want to use version four of the runtime, you will use .NET 6. I don't think there's a way around that. Okay, that, that clarifies. And I think the .NET 6 and Visual Studio 2022 official launch is also during November. So perhaps we talk about those more in depth in a future episode. So on my side, I wanted to pick this one up because I, I feel it's super interesting, perhaps useful, but I have zero use for this myself. <laughs> so, so this is a preview, Visual Studio Code for the web. Meaning if you go to vscode.dev, it will open VS Code in a browser for you. And you can just start typing away your Azure function or whatever else you're planning on implementing. You can open local files, or you can open files from a repo hosted in GitHub or Azure DevOps in, in an Azure repo. And, and I'm sort of thinking about this. I understand the need for this perhaps. And there's also the option to upgrade this session to a GitHub code spaces which implies there's a virtual machine eventually running in the back. But for me, most of the work that I do, I'm, I'm sitting in my home office. I, I have Windows 11. I've got Visual Studio multiple versions installed. If I want to run any of those or VS Code, I, I just click on those on the start menu or, or I type in the, the name. And that's that. Everything is loaded in, in a split second. So I'm sort of thinking, what's the use case for using VS Code in a browser? Is it because you're on the move and you just have your phone with you and you definitely need to code something? Or is this more about having multiple environments, perhaps having different customer projects and, and you just want to open something quickly on the browser to check on something? Do you, do you see a need or, or do you have a need for this in your life or am I just missing out on something? I, well, maybe you're missing out on something, uh, but also maybe not. Like if you don't see the need, you don't have the need in a sense. But I, I uh, did take a look on social media and Twitter as the event was ongoing. And when I saw announcements at Ignite now with Visual Studio Code for the web, people were you know lit on fire. This is the best thing since sliced bread. I'm not sure that I share that sentiment. I, I like this because it kind of enables me wherever I am to just open a browser and do something. But it's for me, I mean, I, I do a lot of development. I do a lot of editing using Visual Studio Code and, you know, the big Visual Studio. Uh, and I actually spend more time with the big Visual Studio right now. So I, I'm not sure I would see the need to use a web edition because I'm not a pure developer anymore that just spends 24-7 coding. And even if I were, I would probably code a lot during my working hours. And when I'm not working, I would perhaps spend my time differently. Uh, I remember if I look back when I grew up, you know, before settling down, if you will. I spent a lot of code nights. I did a lot of things during the nights. Uh, I launched a product company. I had a consulting business, training business and whatever. And I worked 24 seven, whenever I could. At that point, it might've made sense because I, maybe I went to someone that I knew or I was at a cafe or an internet cafe that existed back in the day. You know, at that point, it might've made sense. Right now, I'm not so sure because I had VS Code on my laptop, which goes with me wherever I go. And I will never be like surprised by, oh, you have to modify a file now using Visual Studio Code, surprised, and then I have to pull up a web browser on my tablet and connect a keyboard to that. That never happens, and that will not happen. And if it does happen that I 
on demand need to modify some kind of file in VS Code when I'm not at my desk, then I will go back to my desk. So I, I, perhaps we're on the same page here, not seeing the, the entire value, but this can also be because perhaps we don't spend full days working as developers. So if you're tuning in and you're a full-time dev, reach out on Twitter to add Yuzirojne or to add Simmergrin. Are you using Visual Studio Code for the web or are you already using uh, GitHub Code Spaces? And if so, what's the use case? So, because I don't, have that use case myself. And I don't think Yuzi does either. But if you're tuning in and you have a great use case, just please share it with us and we can share this in the coming coming episodes as well. Actually, I'm, I, I sort of came up with two use cases. One would be that, that you work as, as part of a team as a developer and you would have a browser profile to check on something, perhaps to check on an existing project to replicate or mimic something to an ongoing project. And somebody in the team might say, hey, open this address and you can quickly review what we just did without sort of investing your time into getting to the actual project. But the other use case, and this is something that I will try this weekend, what I could do is I can open Windows subsystem for Linux, which I have installed, meaning that I, I get a Linux shell. And from there, I can now execute a graphical application with the uh, WSLG, which is built in. And that allows me to run Edge on Linux, which is now stable. And with Edge, I could open VS Code Dev in Edge on Linux on Windows 11. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, great use case, really. <laughs> 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 it's, it's back to the, I need a gadget. I need to find a way to use this. <laughs> exactly. So what do you have on your list next? So I have a, a short thing. I saw, I'll take uh, two items at once now because the first one is super short. Um, something called Azure Chaos Studio. Funny name, uh, but it's tied to something called um, Chaos Engineering. And we talked about this in episode 37. So that's quite some time ago. Um, early on in the podcast career, if you will, we talked about chaos engineering and what that is. So if you if you have no idea what that is, you can revisit episode 37 or just search for chaos engineering control alt Azure podcast in whatever podcast player you're using. So Microsoft announced the Azure Chaos Studio and it's a fully managed experimentation platform to accelerate the discovery of kind of hard to find issues, things that you cannot find easily with a unit test. So for example, you can disrupt the apps you have running intentionally to identify some gaps and plan for mitigations to, so you can really find the transient falls and reliability improvements and stuff like this. So you can, um, you can find your network latency, you can uh, inject unexpected storage outages, you can uh, expire secrets, for example, stuff like this that will happen in production one point in time sooner or later if you don't actually handle that. So the Azure Chaos Studio can help you uh, kind of do that. But I think we'll actually dedicate a full episode to Azure Chaos Studio after we spend some time using that ourselves, perhaps, to kind of come back to the episode 37 and follow up on chaos engineering and how we can do that in practice using the Chaos Studio. So I, I really like that. And I know big companies uh, that use chaos engineering. And it's a great way to really harden the systems you have. Uh, you know, developers, they're awesome. They do great things. But a developer doesn't know what happens if the web network goes down for one millisecond or if a secret expires because the secret is supposed to be there. So you can do a try-catch or you can see, is the secret not there? Okay, so I handle that in code. It doesn't matter because if it's not there, I cannot actually connect to the database. 
So I really like this. But I mentioned I was talking about two updates. That's the one. We'll take a separate show to talk about that one. The other one is in GA now. And I know in a couple of episodes, we've talked about Azure Arc. And now there's uh, Azure Monitor Container Insights for Azure Arc-enabled Kubernetes. So that's a mouthful. So if you use Kubernetes and you connect this with Azure Arc, you now can use Azure Monitor Container Insights. So this is now in GA, so it's out of preview. So this means you have one-click onboarding from the Azure portal. So you can say this Azure Arc connected Kubernetes cluster should also get Azure Monitor. You click a button pretty much and you get it. And you receive uh, you know, the automatic agent updates for the latest version uh, of monitoring, you know, performance visibility by collecting memory and processor metrics from controllers, nodes, and whatever you have your containers. So you get all, all of these things. Um, and then, of course, all the uh, alerting and querying capabilities that you have with Azure Monitor as well. So I, I like that. And the reason I'm mentioning that is I know a lot of people who's using Kubernetes, either AKS, which already have a good integration with these things, or now if you do run Azure Arc and you connect your Kubernetes cluster, you can use Azure Monitor Container Insights as well. So that's pretty cool. So that's a lot of moving parts of thinking about Azure Monitor Containers, Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes. Perhaps also something I need to set up in the future. Yeah, yeah, Um, I'm sure you need it. (laughs) uh, Next on my list is provisioned throughput spending limit for Azure Cosmos DB accounts. That's now generally available. This is something that I needed three years ago. Uh, We were building a solution using Cosmos DB. And at the time, Cosmos DB did not have this sort of uh, limit setting capability. And the problem obviously was that you would have a developer doing whatever they do. They would hit the database, do whatever queries they needed. And then somebody would call me a week later to say, hey, Cosmos DB is costing us 500 euro a day. Why is this? Well, somebody did this and that sort of queries and, and, and that sucks. Well, tell them not to do that sort of queries. No, but it's a database. So now you can set a spending limit per account. So regardless of how many collections you have in that account, they will all be pulled together and and you can define a hard limit. Never go over this. And the great thing about this is that when you configure it, Azure portal is is actually telling you that based on our estimates, this this is the amount of spend you are about to do this month if you have this sort of a limit. So this is just a checkbox and a text box where you put whatever request units per second you want to put the cap on. So it took about three and a half years to get here. Now it's finally here. I'm I'm happy for this. And I feel perhaps just for this reason, I can perhaps rely a bit more on using Cosmos DB in the future because I don't have to worry that much anymore. How much is it going to cost me? I can have hard limit and that's that. I, I like this. And I, I also like the capabilities in Azure in general to set up budget alerts and, and stuff like this. So this is a definitely a welcome change because I, I also know that when you provision your throughput for Cosmos, for example, it may or may not go as you expect. And costs in Azure can be tricky to figure out. So any anytime you can limit stuff is good, especially in, in dev and key ways. You can kind of figure out if you have spikes in, in the costs at that point. So in QA, we do a lot of load testing and stuff like this as well. So we, we usually figure things out in QA before it goes into production, which is good. 
but even in production, you could set up limits and alerts to uh, yeah, really stay ahead so you don't get a surprise bill of a million euros, which perhaps is not ideal. So the next thing on my side is something, again, in GA that was announced now, Azure App Service Diagnostic Settings feature. So you can now better utilize the telemetry from web apps and other platform data, and you can send these logs from Windows or Linux app services to storage accounts, event hubs, or log analytics. So I'm a big fan of log analytics, and I think I've mentioned that perhaps a lot in the podcast over the over the years. Uh, I use that a lot, and now this is something that really helps your your dev team and the operations team to capture and analyze the important data about the app. So devs they can set up their own automatic email alerts, you know, with full stack traces when an exception is thrown. Traditionally, we had to go on the operations side, uh, or if I was a dev, I had to reach out to the operations AA. I know we don't have a full DevOps lifecycle in, in that scenario, but that's how it traditionally worked. The dev said, hey, something failed, but we cannot see the exception. They have to go to operations and they share the exception, send it back. Now the devs, they can set this up themselves so they get like the full diagnostic logs as well, not just the custom logging that they have built into the app, but the, like the raw diagnostic logs from the app services as well. Uh, operations can create dashboards and view like the overall performance and stability data which is also helpful, especially when you have, again, distributed applications running across subscriptions in multiple places. You can kind of pull this data into a single dashboard uh, or a few single, a few dashboards. Another use case is compliance teams, and you can monitor login attempts, uh, file changes, and stuff like this for your app services. So this is really something that uh, yeah, just enables you to see and understand more of what's going on. And I mean, we operate everything we offer our customers is running through app services. So everything goes through a UI, it's a web portal, uh, it's a web app. So obviously if the app doesn't work or if we can't figure out why something doesn't work, then we're losing, losing the game. So anything that can help us stay ahead of any type of issues uh, will, will be helpful. So this is a good step in that direction. And there's a couple of log types they support, stuff like uh, console logs, HTTP logs, uh, environment platform logs, uh, audit logs, file audit logs, app logs, IPsec audit logs, if you want to see requests from IP rules and stuff like this, and platform logs for, for container operation logs. So there's a bunch of things that you can subscribe to. So me, I'm shooting this to log analytics because I, I live in there. Sometimes it's a cold and, and a scary place to live. But a lot of the time, if, if you get the data incorrectly and you know how to get the data out, then it can be a beautiful place as well. Uh, but like mentioned, you can send it to storage accounts, event hubs or log analytics. So you, you have the choice where you want to send that data. I was listening to you go, go through this feature and thinking, I hope there's a capability that if I use app services for containers, meaning that I want to run a Docker-based container within a web app, that I could get those logs. And the last bit that you mentioned, the app service platform logs has the container operation logs. That's been the missing piece for me. Something failed. You need to open the uh, the the old kudo interface, dig in through the emulated command prompt, try to type through the logs. That's painful. But if I can now pick those automatically up, push those to log analytics, set alerts, this is beautiful. Yeah, in theory. In theory, let's see how it works. <laughs> this is this is not for next weekend, but the weekend after that, that I need to test this. Uh, on my side, the next one is, uh, this is generally available. 
And this is something I did not know that I actually need. But when I read through this update, I realized this is something I need. So centralized management of keys for encrypting Azure disks for virtual machines. The, the, the premise here is that when you spin up a virtual machine, you can have the disks for those VMs to be encrypted when at rest. But when you when you actually mount them within the VM, obviously those are not encrypted anymore. So you can use Azure Disk Encryption, and that requires Key Vault. So what you do, you spin up a Key Vault. You you define the policy that you can use a disk. Uh, you can use the Key Vault for disk encryption. That's fine. But with this update now, you can have a single Key Vault, and VMs from other subscriptions can access that key vault to get the decryption key for mounting storage for those respective VMs. In a sense, centralized key vault in one subscription for all VMs to enforce Azure Disk Encryption for all VMs. So this is this is something that I know I will start using now. I'm already using ADE, the disk encryption, but since that always requires the key vault, it's always a bit problematic to add one more key vault to manage and, and maintain. Now I can just have one per customer and that's enough. Yeah, I like this. And I, I mean, centralized management of any type of keys is important. And, and you know, same thing for secrets, encryption keys, and a bunch of other things and certificates. Anything you can centralize and where applicable makes sense. And especially if it's internal stuff. So if, if you serve multiple VMs or you have multiple machines that needs these disks and they come from the same location or within the boundaries, the, the same regulatory or legal boundaries, then it's okay. If you have perhaps different customers or different regions or uh, data constraints, data sovereignty laws saying you cannot send data from this region to that region, then it makes sense to have two of them, one in each region or multiple regions. But anything that lives within the, the realm of that logical barrier would then go to a single vault in that region. And I really like that as well. So that's a great update. I had missed this one. Uh, thanks for sharing. Now I, I've got this on my virtual uh, mental um, list of things to uh, check out because we actually use these things as well. So this can help uh, some of the long-term maintenance and operations. Okay, I have a, a final point on my list. And... <laughs> this is the standing point that I usually talk about. It's the security center updates or security updates in general. I think we, we have to perhaps rename this from security center updates because Microsoft, again, has renamed a couple of products. So there's a few new names in town and Microsoft Azure Security Center is now known as Microsoft Defender for Cloud. Okay, so Microsoft Defender for Cloud Security Center. So good to bear in mind. You will still see in the docs security center in a lot of places. In some places, you will see that Microsoft Defender for Cloud is in place of that. In some places, you see both and, and that it's a transitioning happening. So if you listen into this and you don't find security center mentioned in the docs, it's because it's now called Microsoft Defender for Cloud. And on that note, I said that there's a few new names in town. And the other one is Microsoft Cloud App Security uh, or MCAS. So I've used that a lot. And they also got a new uh, rebrand. So that's now called Microsoft Defender for Cloud 
apps. So if Security Center is Microsoft Defender for Cloud, uh, MCAS or Microsoft Cloud App Security is now Microsoft Defender for Cloud Apps. Okay, so it keeps the apps as the name anyway. So we know what that is. And there's some new great capability, capabilities to Defender for Cloud Apps as well. And I think maybe we can spend an episode actually talking about those because they are pretty cool. And then the last bit is Azure Sentinel, which is now Microsoft Sentinel. So the name is still Sentinel. So it's pretty easy to, uh, to, to remember that one. But back to the updates. So that's one update about the naming. Uh, Purview, Microsoft Purview or Azure Purview, uh, has a preview feature, uh, prioritizing security actions by data sensitivity, which is something, of course, that there's a million things going on in these areas. But I, yeah, I like these kind of small updates. And yeah, it's, I, I know uh, we talked a while back ago, some of the security updates, and we said we'll, we'll do a full episode with a bunch of updates for the security stuff. And I think looking at what happened at Ignite, we would have 10 episodes that we could fill with security updates. But I, I like these small nuggets because looking back now at the Ignite event that happened last week, anything is, or these, these things, which can be pretty significant, at least to me, they kind of disappear in the flow. So you have to really go and find them and pick them out. So the other thing is expanded security control assessments with Azure Security Benchmark version three. So if you use Security Center, sorry, Microsoft Defender for cloud, if you use that and you use the uh, kind of secure score and you use the regulatory compliance stuff and you want to see how your organization or, or, or the setup you're using is compared to the industry standards and stuff like this, there's also the Azure Security Benchmark uh, with version three. So there are some uh, expanded security controls and assessments for that. And the final thing that I picked up, which also kind of disappeared in the in all of the uh, announcements, is uh, Microsoft Sentinel connectors uh, have optional bi-directional alert sync, which is now in GA. And what that means is if you uh, connect something in Azure, sorry, Microsoft Sentinel, and, and you have a connector maybe to Security Center, sorry, Microsoft Defender for Cloud. <laughs> and so you have Microsoft Defender for Cloud connected to Azure Sentinel with a connector, and you have alerts in both these places. And Sentinel triggers an alert. Now you can have this bi-directional. So if you update an alert in Sentinel, it will be updated. If you choose to have the bi-directional sync, it uh, will be updated in uh, Defender for Cloud. Vice versa, if you get an alert there uh, and you take action on it and, and change the alert state or whatever, it will change then back and, and synchronize back to Sentinel. So I think this is something that I've been missing in the past because we could use Sentinel we had Azure Sentinel at the time, it was called that, and Security Center, and we had this uh, alert coming in. We got an alert in Sentinel, which created an incident, and then we got the alerts in Security Center as well, and we could kind of mark them as done or you know, get some kind of sync going, but the incident in Sentinel was still kind of disconnected. That was a copy of the alert. So if I change something in, in Security Center, nothing happened on, on the incident alert that I had. So now with a bi-directional sync, we can do some, some real syncing between these things to keep the, the logs perhaps a bit tidier and, and really understand what did we take action on. And otherwise you will have false positives or you will have duplicate alerts, which is also very difficult to take action, action on because after some time you realize for every alert you get, you have to verify if you already took action on that one alert in the other side. So pretty cool. So I'm I'm fairly confident I can start memorizing these new names 
But as you said, since you've been using Azure Sentinel for a year or two now, then when even you're referring to those services, you consciously need to change the wording in your head. And that's the challenge here. Last one for me on my list, in preview, new Azure Arc capabilities. So, so there's two new capabilities and Azure Arc is really the Microsoft journey, if you will, to edge computing, to hybrid, to anything that's outside Azure that you somehow want to manage, monitor or control. So the first one is there's a new feature called directly connected mode for data services, meaning that when you spin up a Kubernetes cluster, perhaps in on-premises, perhaps in a separate data center, perhaps in a different cloud service, and you connect that with Azure Arc, meaning that you want to manage that cube cluster from Azure portal, you can now define that as directly connected meaning that whatever you do from Azure portal will reflect on that Kubernetes cluster wherever it's eventually deployed, even though it's outside Azure. So this is one, perhaps on paper it looks small, but I think anybody really wanting to run Kubernetes locally will find this super useful. The other one, this is slightly more complex, and I did try reading the documents that would I be able to spin this up in my home lab? And, and I'm not sure one weekend would be enough. So another update is Azure Arc gives support for machine learning experiments that you run locally. And how this works is that, again, you have the Kubernetes cluster running locally. You spin that up and then connect that with Azure Arc so that you can maintain and manage that cube cluster from Azure portal. But then you can register the Azure ML, the machine learning extension on top of the cluster and create a compute target. And now when you go to Azure ML Studio and you want to create your experiment by having a data set, perhaps you need a GPU for that. You have a compute target running on your local Kubernetes cluster and Azure ML will reach through Azure Arc to your compute target, which could be a beefy server at home with a bunch of GPUs. And you can run that experiment locally and then report back to Azure ML. And having set this up once, having the Azure Arc and the Kubernetes clusters and everything else, it, it takes a couple of hours to figure out how it works. And I'm not keen on looking into how to do it for the ML bits because it quite rapidly goes into running Python scripts, and that becomes fairly painful for me. But definitely something to look forward to in the future. And perhaps this sort of underlines the fact that Azure Arc is, is rapidly expanding to these perhaps more advanced use cases that you might want to run locally as opposed to running everything in Azure. And that, I feel, is, is perhaps the, the big thing here. I haven't used Azure Arc a lot, because we don't really have anything to connect. But I I do keep seeing literally every week a bunch of updates re regarding this. So it's it's definitely something that I, they're betting a lot on. So it's impressive to see the amount of updates coming out in this space as well. Indeed, indeed. So this was all the updates we had. And, and there's plenty of updates, regardless that we already covered plenty of those in, in one of the previous episodes on Microsoft Ignite as well. 
So we have the last thing, the unexpected question. And last time it was you asking me, so let me ask you. Okay. What's what's the unwritten rule for your home office? Something that only you know intrinsically by heart, but perhaps if somebody else was to visit your home office and work remotely from there, they wouldn't even even understand or or know about this rule. Okay, it's a good question. I don't have a lot of rules, but I, there's one one thing I try to stick to with all things in life. Less is more, right? So uh, minimalism in a way. And if someone were to work from my home office, and I invite anyone to come join me working from here, but you make a mess, you're out. So that is, it's an unwritten rule because obviously I, I will not tell anyone coming here, hey, don't make a mess because I expect everyone to not make a mess. But I mean, looking at my desk now, I have my monitor, my phone, because I have the timer so I can look at it, and my keyboard and my mouse. That's it. No papers, no keys, no cups, nothing else. Well, actually, I do have one cup now because I'm drinking a cup of tea right now. When that's done, the cup is gone. And I, I like this same inside of my computer. My desktop inside my computer is clean. There's nothing on it. I don't have a bunch of icons on the desktop because why would I? You know, I put them wherever they need to be. I don't need to have them on the desktop. So whenever I start my morning, I have a clean desk on my actual physical desk, and I have a clean desk in the machine as well inside of the computer. And I like my office to be in a like a Zen mode. Whenever I enter my home office, I need to have good vibes. So every morning, for example, I, I use Google, the Google Assistant. So when I'm in my kitchen, I talk to my watch. It's a smart watch. And I talk to it and say, hey, Google, uh, ignite the office. And I set up uh, a text, uh, a speech to text that sends a command to start a good playlist on Spotify. It turns on my spotlights and they, it comes to dim, dim them up because I'm using one of those uh, smart home things. And it turns on my other lighting that I have around the desk with the colors that I want. So whenever I start my, my morning, I come in from the main buildings and my office is in a, a rebuilt garage, which is a separate building from the main house. When I come in here, you know, I immediately get great vibes and nothing can screw my vibes up. And coming back to the question, the unwritten rule is don't make a mess and don't ruin the vibe, <laughs> right? Because you always need to be, for me, to be able to focus, I need to have no distractions or I want no distractions. There can be distractions. I can work anyway, but I, I feel better if there's nothing else to think about. If I see laundry or dishes or papers lying around, I will immediately think, oh, I need to do that thing. Oh, I need to do that thing. This way, you know, it's just clean, super cool. It's a great kind of Zen mode to uh, to walk into my home office. So I'd like to keep that. That sounds really, really good. I, I really like this approach to to have a clean desk because when you have a clean desk, it means you have more space for gadgets you can you can put around the displays <laughs> and the keyboards and everything else. <laughs> Nothing around the displays here. Got it. Empty Alrighty. <laughs> this this was fun as always. Thank you for joining us this week. And we hope you join us next week as well. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.